Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is the wonderful Dr. Pragya Agarwal. She is a behavioural and data scientist. She's also the author of Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias, which came out this year in 2020. Her next book, Wish We Knew What To Say, Talking With Children About Race, is a manual for parents, carers and educators of all backgrounds and ethnicities to talk to children about race and racism. And it's out with Dialogue Publishers in October this year. Her writing on bias and prejudice and motherhood, gender and equality has appeared in The Guardian, Independent, Huffington Post and many, many more. She's such a brilliant voice on all of these different subjects, which really is about thinking outside of the box and examining how the labels and stereotypes that we place onto people really affects us as a society. And she really digs into the science behind it, the biology, and how we can change, hopefully for the better as well. She also has a mini podcast series called Outside the Boxes, which examines all of the above. This episode is all about conscious and unconscious bias. We dig into some of the topics that she talks about in Sway. It's such an interesting book. And it's about how we can notice our own bias and what we can do to make the world a better place, really, without sounding too worthy. But this book really does make you want to check in on the way you live your life and the thoughts that you have and just being really aware of your own behaviour, basically. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please go and leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And go and buy Pragya's book and also her new book that is coming out because I think it's incredible that she is creating this manual for people to be able to talk about race with young people. So here is the episode and I hope you enjoy it. So I'm so excited, Pragya. Thank you so much for joining me. I've wanted to talk to you about Sway for so long, since it came out, since I read it. And um, here you are. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Emma. It's such a huge pleasure to speak to you. I'm a huge fan of your writing and work. So. Oh, thank you. I, I remember just a little trip down memory lane for the listeners, but I remember when I went on, I think it was money box right at the bbc podcast and you phoned in as a multi-hyphenate and i was like i just loved you from that moment <laughs> before i even read your work in your book so so nice that we're doing yes. this so as a behavioral scientist i wanted to ask you i know that in the book you say that you've always been interested in this subject always been interested in people's behaviors and reactions and the way that they live their lives mm. i just wondered when you first realized that that was something you might go into were you quite young or was it something that came gradually so my career has been really interesting actually <laughs> when I was really young I wanted to be a surgeon a heart surgeon I think I was four years old I had this kind of thing I'm going to be a heart surgeon and I'm going to go into villages and and uh, treat people for free so that was a dream for a long time but then um, in India, the education system works very differently. You have to take an entrance test at national level. I went to do architecture, study architecture, where it was really interesting because it was kind of mixed between creativity, art and science, which which I really loved that balance. And still it was considered a STEM subject. So we were only like five girls in a whole year of 50. And then um, I came here to do a master's and PhD, and my PhD was uh, very interdisciplinary. It was technology, geography, spatial science, cognitive science, 
philosophy, computers. It was really interdisciplinary. And that's when I started really thinking about how people's behavior affect technology and the design of technologies. And so I think that's where it all started, really. Yeah, because I know in the first few chapters of the book, you do talk about, you know, those comments towards women that women get a lot, which is, you know, you're quite good for a girl, you know, just that very subtle, but very damaging sort of Mm. language. But I wondered with the bias that you write about, you write about conscious bias, unconscious bias, implicit bias. I wondered if you could just give us a little summing up of what that word bias actually means, because it can be quite a few different things within the book, just so we can then go on to talk about it in a bit more detail. Yeah, absolutely. So the bias um, word in itself just means kind of swaying towards somebody, which links to the title. And it was used in like sporting uh, terminologies, like the the bias of the ball when you're bowling it to a cricketer. And it's used in various contexts. In terms of this conscious and unconscious bias, it's it's our preferences. So if we are positively biased towards something, for instance, if I like a certain flavor of ice cream or cereal or parents love their children and think they're the best things in the world or whatever, that's a positive bias, a positive preference towards somebody. But that can also mean that we negatively discriminate against other people who are not, we are not positively biased against. And bias can also mean just cognitive shortcuts. So in their cognitive shortcuts in our brain, like I talk about from a cognitive science perspective that help us make decisions because these are the templates already there and we we already know from our past experiences and memories that we are biased against certain things. But that can also lead to prejudice, discrimination, bigotry, and more deeper problems um, because of that. But bias in itself is not a really a negative word. It just means a preference for something one way or the other. Yeah, that was really, really interesting the way that you you do such a great job of kind of explaining that it's it's not a way to justify any sort of preference in a negative way. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that because as much as you're summing it up as a cognitive, quite human thing that we sway towards people that sound more like us and things like that, you also make the point that this isn't kind of letting anyone off the hook for being biased. Yeah, and I really wanted to bring that across because I think sometimes media headlines or even politicians can use it as, as or people themselves can use it as an excuse that if it maybe it's hardwired within us or maybe it's just something the way humans are designed that they're supposed to be biased against certain things. And I do discuss the evolutionary basis of these some of these biases in my book about how evolutionary based theories mean that in the distant past, humans had this instinct to separate people into in-group and out-group. And because it kind of stems from the notion of fear and threat and to survive, that we had, they had to make really quick decisions about who's not part of a group. And so they are fear to us. They are threat to the resources, very limited resources that we have. But what happens now is that these biases can lead to kind of systemic and structural issues. So if there is a bias or a stereotype against a group of people and there is a general assumption that a certain group of people are going to be like this. People have already made a decision that they're going to be like this. So nobody's judged on their own individual merit. And it's quite a complex thing in some ways because sometimes these individual biases can also be used to excuse systemic and structural 
biases that exist in a society, these inequalities, which are due to the kind of history and legacy of oppression that are already there, like housing discrimination or job discrimination, who gets paid how much. But we have to understand that we are also accountable and responsible and we are part of the system. Just saying that these are systemic problems doesn't absolve us of our own individual responsibility because as much as it's systemic, we know that our individual biases and the way we act and our actions and decisions and interactions also affect these systemic and structural inequalities. So we feed into it. So I see it as like a loop. And I think that's why we need to have a discussion of how these biases or unconscious biases feed into the structural inequalities, but also what we can do as individuals to counter those as well. Mm, absolutely. And I wondered, maybe this is an obvious question, because I know that, you know, in the book, you have lots of examples of people owning up to their biases. Do you think we all need to be a bit more honest about them? Because I really, I felt quite inspired by, um, you know, Anne Hathaway. I know that you, mm. I know this is a random example from the book. Uh, there's lots more of uh, better examples probably in the book. But she says that when she was on a film set, she she didn't, sort of think the female director of the film would be as good or shouldn't trust her as much or something like that and I thought I think that's quite brave to just admit these things a bit more often. Yeah absolutely I completely agree and I think part of the problem with these biases are not talked about or people are so quick to dismiss them or say they are just I know I re recently read an article in the Guardian which said unconscious bias was just psychobabble because I think people are so afraid to confront these judgments inside them because we all like to believe we are really fair-minded and we are not contributing to structural inequalities in any way. We just want to believe that. We want to believe that we have mm -hmm. nothing to do with it. And so we can shirk away our responsibility. We can just hide away and just not question ourselves. And I think it's really important to acknowledge how sometimes our perception of other people are based in these stereotypes that we have and how we these stereotypes become ingrained so racialization ingrained gender bias as you are mentioning these examples they're there and i really wanted to create this book as kind of a non-judgmental space where i confront some of my biases where I talk about, for instance, the bias when my three-year-old started speaking in a Liverpoolian accent and I had to step back and think, oh no, <laughs> why is she speaking in this accent? And then suddenly I had to think, oh, wait a minute, why do I have this bias against this accent? Because it's a lovely accent, there are lovely people here. So I think the more we talk about it openly, the more we can challenge these stereotypes and the more we can say, yes, I am biased and so are you, but the important question is what are we going to do about it? And are we going to let it affect our judgment and decisions of people? Yes, because now that I can notice my own bias especially after reading your book it's helped me really unpack some of the thoughts that I have or the decisions that I make because you it's so fascinating all the stuff you write about of how quick sometimes our minds work and how quickly we categorize things in our minds but it was so so um, interesting reading all the research around how we do gravitate towards people that are like ourselves I know that you write in there about a study that said that we even prefer the letters that appear in our own names more than other letters in the alphabet. I was like, that is insane. But but I can understand it. And that we want to kind of surround ourselves with, with like-minded people. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the ramifications for that when it comes to technology. Because 
it, it's all very well that you're sitting in the pub with your three best friends and they all look and sound like you. I mean, we could argue that you probably should get out of that <laughs> social circle and go and explore the world a bit more anyway. But when it comes to social media, I think that's pretty damaging, isn't it? If we only listen to people that are just echoing ourselves back at us. Yes, and I think we have a tendency to do that. And the technology is reinforcing some of our biases and societal biases. And we know that when we are engaging on social media, we are doing it often in a hurry and when we are distracted. And we know by research when we are distracted in a hurry, we are more likely to just go with our instincts rather than judge every bit of information that's coming through in a rational and logical manner. And of course, we it's a form of kind of a validating our identity and self-worth and self-esteem because we like our views being echoed back at us. We like this kind of confirmation and affinity bias where people are reinforcing what we think. So when we do that, this kind of echo chambers or filter bubbles are created in social media and we hit like and retweet really quickly without even thinking what we are spreading and how news spreads. And that's how fake news spreads as well sometimes. But also mm. we we don't confront any kind of dissenting views and confront and question some of the assumptions that we already have of people or of the world. You know, we don't try and expand that sometimes. I think that's why traveling is important or or just actively, really actively questioning the stereotypes. Like, like even now when we're talking about racism so openly with what happened with George Floyd, it's so easy to say, it's their problem or it's somebody else's problem. The problem doesn't lie with us. It doesn't happen in the UK or I, I am not part of the problem. But I think that's why we need to think about do you cross the road when you see a black man walking towards you, especially in the dark? Do you clutch your handbag more closely? Do you assume that an Indian person is going to be a certain way because you've watched Big Bang Theory and Rajesh Kutrapali? acting in a certain way or you know these media and these representations reinforce some of these things as does as does social media so yes i think technology especially social media has a role to play in how we choose who to listen to and who we give importance to cuz there was a lot of really interesting really interesting stuff in the book about that about how we become the people that we are and I wondered if we could talk a little bit about that about how you know in the book you you kind of question like are we born mm. with a bias or do we learn it and I found that really oh find that conversation so interesting and I know even around the anti-racism you know uh, the information out there at the moment people are saying well no one is born racist mm. But then we need to unpick why these biases feel so innate. I think, again, a lot of the, the feeling of racism or any kind of biases is based in fear and threat, fear of somebody different from us, and that anybody who's not part of the in-group is somebody to be feared. So in that way, there is a little bit of that primal instinct to lay down these lines. But what we have to question is that we are not determined by these primal instincts, 
we cannot use them as an excuse. Yes, children do that as well from a young age. They make sense of people's facial skin color and they start attributing labels and properties to this. But at that stage, it's just a matter of differentiation of people and familiarity and non-familiarity rather than associating any prejudices with them. These prejudices only come from social cues, from what their parents or educators are talking about or how they act in front of these other people or what they say about them, what they see in books, what they see in media. And again, if they feel like there's always a certain group of people who should be feared, who we should, or they are different, or they're going to act in a certain way, then people start forming these kind of labels and these kind of stereotypes of people, which stereotypes, they become ingrained biases and prejudices as we grow older. So I do mm. firmly believe that we learn these biases through our lives. And that's why it's so important to question where these biases are coming from. What kind of information are we taking in? Are we questioning these this bits of information or anything that we are reading? If we read the same newspaper and we know that that newspaper is prejudiced towards a certain group of people, we're always going to get kind of conditioned into it. If we follow a certain party and we know that the politicians are making this as their kind of political messaging where they create fear around certain group of people like immigrants coming and taking your jobs or whatever, they'd be more likely to trust these people who are in power because of status quo. And so we are going to get conditioned into believing that these messages get deeply ingrained. So I think this is why it's so important to have diverse media, diverse reading, diverse books, so that we can get exposed to different kind, but also break some of these stereotypes from a young age. Mm, wow, that, is, that was such a brilliant answer. I mean, like, I'm just so fascinated in everything that you know, which want to like step inside your brain, um, which you can do in the book. But um, I wondered, yeah, how we can do something about that. Because what worries me is that with social media it just reinforces this bias mm. over and over again with the algorithms because I feel like you have to manually go and hunt out diverse voices which it shouldn't be like that should it I mean the fact that in the even for, this is just one example of many but in the wellness industry you know it is still very white mm. very able-bodied very that just everyone kind of is yeah. is doing the yeah. same thing yeah and the algorithm because they have the most followers just keep showing up these same faces and same things so it's like how do we break that loop of just being fed the same information because it is basically just a white supremacy isn't it within an algorithm yeah yeah absolutely these machine they, it's so tricky and what you're saying is so spot on and algorithms there is so much research about how the white supremacy, how it gets built into these machine learning algorithms and AI as well. But I mean, I know we get a lot of information from social media, but it's so important for us to step outside social media and get our information and knowledge. And yes, it takes effort. Yes, it it really takes a lot of initiative to go and actually look for people and for books to follow and find out. And it's so difficult to do that. So I was just recently thinking about how do people start reading outside your echo chambers? Because you mm. you follow the same people, they're talking about the same books, you're reading the same lists, you're, and you want to be in with the in-crowd. You want to read the book that's part of the cultural zeitgeist, you know, in a way, and you want to be in the know. But then how, a lot of literature is like translated literature from, from the countries of origin where it was written. So it's less likely to have some of those stereotypes that get inbuilt because it's been published here 
by a publishing industry which is predominantly white and it takes a lot of effort to go and find these people to follow these people to follow these social media accounts which might not have huge followings and to hunt it out yes i think it that is why it's hard work it is hard work but we have mm. to do it i think it's challenging work absolutely absolutely and that's why it's called doing the work i guess because yes. you have to go and make things better like on an individual level I really liked the chapter on gut instinct because I I've heard that being said in many different other ways like in kind of career books or like in spiritual books and this really kind of cut in in more of like an academic way of that kind of instinct that we all have inside us so I suppose we have to kind of get to know ourselves a bit more as well which I love about your book yeah I think so I think we we sometimes don't trust our judgments sometimes as well and i think we get so and of course the whole thing with gut instinct is that if we are falling back on an instinct we are more likely to fall back on our biases and stereotypes and these templates because because we're making really quick decisions but we are said that follow your gut and follow your first instinct and and on the other hand my mom always used to tell me don't judge the book by its cover or or don't you know make the first impression of somebody I think the important thing is that we need to there's room for both I think we do need to follow our instinct on certain occasions but we need to recognize when that instinct is is making us fall back on our stereotypes or assumptions mm-hmm. and if you're doing the work constantly in on a regular basis not just as a one off then we will be questioning these stereotypes so that we kind of reprogramming ourselves in a way to to think more clearly so even when we are falling back on our instinct, we know and we can trust it much more because we are not we are not we don't have those kind of prejudices built in into us anymore regular work and making sure that we use the instinct as kind of a trigger for more rational and logical thought and so i think there is a room for both having more rational kind of decision making but also falling back on an instinct but how do we use both and work with both and i hope that the book provides some of the information around that so it definitely does and i guess it's all to do with how we need to be better at critical thinking especially in a time where we're being fed so many strange fake headlines and things um i know in the book you say that you don't want to present a pessimistic view or uh, an optimistic view and i i just wanted to ask you how did you find writing the book and wanting to really kind of come at it from a place of like you say it's a very it's quite a welcoming book but it also stays you know it doesn't sway mind the pun too much kind of either way when you're talking about things like you're just you really kind of hit us with the facts and and it's really powerful oh thank you so much emma that that means a lot <laughs> yeah the writing the book was interesting i had quite a short deadline so there's a lot of late night <laughs> and i know my rational brain doesn't work very well at late at night because that's when everything seems much bigger than usual but yeah writing the book was quite triggering so as i say i had to reflect a lot on my own biases and prejudices as i read more research and you go down a rabbit hole and you start thinking oh this actually makes so much sense why i did never thought about it before um so yeah it took a long time to get the structure into place but i do find that because it's an emotive topic a number of things that have been written about it either dismiss it completely or just pander to this whole notion of that we need to all take this unconscious bias training and there's no way to engage with it in a in a kind of a very sensible manner in a in a way that we are just looking at the facts and the case studies in a 
cold and rational manner somewhat and just weighing that up. But also I find that people find it difficult to talk about these things sometimes because we don't have the tool and vocabulary to do that. And so even if I have to explain to somebody why, for instance, if they make a joke about somebody's accent, why that is harmful, often it's difficult because either you become very emotional and then you're seen as a person who's overreacting or you don't have the vocabulary to explain it to them why that is a microaggression and how that can really impact. So I really wanted to also be a, this be a book where people can pick up kind of the tools and vocabularies and also have the data on hand to engage with somebody who might not even believe that we all have a role to play in some of the inequalities and racism and sexism and how even our technology is biased. So I really wanted to do that and I, I hope it's it's a place where everybody feels they can like kind of take the time to reflect on our own biases rather than being judged for them. Mm. It is I think a stepping stone though to being uncomfortable. Mm. I think reading your book really opened my eyes but in a way that was um, <laughs> yeah just kind of laying it all down almost as if it's the first step you're going to take to really unravel some like deep things that you need to kind of confront I suppose which I think is an amazing thing. Is there a test that you can do to do to kind of uncover what your bias biases are? Um, yeah, I mean, for example, I talk about the IAT, the implicit association test, a lot in the book, and that's kind of taken as a as this holy grail of <laughs> unconscious bias testing, and a lot of the work around unconscious bias training is built around that test. So people just get people to take this test and you get a score and you can put up a certificate or you can say my score was really low, so I'm not that biased. And I wanted to critique that test because I don't think that's a test which can be used as a training or cure you of unconscious biases. And I think this whole myth that people can be cured of unconscious biases is that is a myth that we have mm -hmm. to do regular work. We have to do a lot of reflection. We have to question actively. There is other other techniques that we can do, but there's still kind of an ongoing process. And what the test does is only show us what associations we make in a very quick way. So I talk about the dual processing theory, the system one processing where the information is coming at us and we process it really quickly without any kind of rational thought is often based in this associative concept. So if I'd say apple, what's the first word that comes to your mind it could be red. Yeah, so that those are the concepts we are associating together. And often first IAT was designed around racism. So about if you say a black man, what comes to it? And people research has shown that people often associate more with aggressiveness or criminality. And that's important thing to understand how these stereotypes feed into societal mm -hmm inequalities in the legal system, in our medical care, or in police brutality, how they feed into that. But that is what it is. It is not going to help us unravel the unconscious biases we hold in us. It can be, make us aware, but that also depends on the context of where we take the test, how we take the test. So if we take the same test twice or three times, we might get different results. So it's not easy to use that and it should never be used as that. And that's what my whole critique with the whole industry around unconscious bias training is that it it has become such a big billion dollar industry, but it's, it's just so misplaced and misguided often. Mm, that's so fascinating. Yeah, because it's almost like you might be diagnosed with something yeah. um, like you would with any test, but it's like, well, what do you do with that information? Exactly. That's, that's the most important thing. 
I wanted to ask you just very quickly about how you work, because I know that on the end of your email, it does say that you're flexible, that you work the way that you want to work. And I know that in lockdown, especially people have maybe been struggling a little bit with um with managing their workload, mm. I suppose. But yeah, any any tips or advice to leave on of how you're managing all your many different things yeah it's such a it's been a difficult time for people managing and juggling different responsibilities but also the stress and anxiety that comes from being in the lockdown and quarantine and uncertainty I think for me personally I I have become much more comfortable with knowing my own body and knowing how I'm feeling so if I need rest I feel I do feel still feel guilty if I'm not working. I think it's very difficult thing to shift, mm-hmm. shake off, but I feel better at saying, okay, if I need to rest, I need to rest and recover before I can push myself at 100 million hour, miles an hour. And I'm also better at, as I say, I'm more flexible. So if I can't work during the day, I can't work during the day. If I want to watch something on Netflix because that's better for my mental well-being, I'll watch it and then I'll work late at night because that's when I work best. So I've kind of accepted that my body clock might be different and that I do my best work at two in the morning, then I'll just do it like that and I might suffer the consequences in the morning, but at least my work gets done. But also, yeah, I think sometimes we compare ourselves to others as well. If somebody else is being really productive and we are not, and I think that I've kind of let go as well. Uh, of looking at other people and what they're doing. I have to set my own milestones. I have my own limitations. I have my own constraints and my family structure or my health or whatever and my own goals and aspirations. So I think I suppose just become more attuned to your body and your mind slowly. It's a work in progress. Mm. (laughs) Mm, No, I love that. It's always good to hear that from especially people who have achieved a lot because you are someone that has done a lot and you continue to do a lot and hearing it being done a different way or their own you know someone's own way is always good to hear so (laughs) sounds sounds like it's working brilliantly for you oh well thank you so much for your time and um yeah just I think I've made it clear that I learned so much from your book so thank you for writing it thank you so much for having me Emma it's been such a pleasure speaking with you thanks and really looking forward to reading Olive oh thank you so much thank you